This message first aired on the radio on June 27, 2003. We're in the parables of the mystery, mysteries of the kingdom of the heavens. Today we're taking up uh, the set of three that follows the set of four. We're, be, we're, we're introducing the set of three parables that are the parables that are the house parables. We've already had the land parables, the ones that are given outside the house, and uh, that had to do with the world and the state of the world during the time of the Lord's absence. And we found uh, certain principles that operate, such that the Lord sowed good seed in his field, and uh, then the good seed that he sowed have different characteristics about them that uh, equate to their fruitfulness or lack thereof. Uh, that was the parable of the sower. Then we see that the field is going to be in a certain mixed condition, and that mixed condition is that an enemy, who we know who the enemy of the Lord is, that an enemy comes in and sows amongst the wheat, tares, and that that is to be continued until the end of the age, and we're supposed to leave them alone, and they will both grow together, and certainly they are growing together uh, very much so, and we can start seeing that poisonous fruit in those tares, and they create a lot of problems for us uh, who are not tares but who are the wheat, and even they can bring about uh, persecution of us, and they do that. Uh, but uh, we see that. Then we also saw the parable of the uh, mustard tree, the mustard seed, which is supposed to be a small uh, bush, an herb, and uh, yet when it, it pervert, gets perverted and it becomes too large, and that's what we see in the world today, that as the the church of God becomes worldly, it becomes large, and it becomes a haven of rest for wicked spirits, demon spirits, who take up positions in the branches and behind, and of course in, in front of, the, they are behind those who would teach false doctrine uh, and call it Christian, and we've had that for 2,000 years for the greater portion. And uh, finally, we saw the mixed condition in the world as a woman, representing false religion, uh, brings about uh, leaven until the whole lump is leavened, and that we uh, equated to the, th the three leavens, the three measures of meal, we, equa we equated to the leaven of the Pharisees and its descendant, the leaven of the Sadducees and its descendant, and the leaven of the Herodians, which is getting great course these days. So now, as we go to the, to the fifth parable, and uh, five being the number of grace, we begin to see really the blessing of the Lord as he uh, comes into the house. So let's just read. Let's just go right to it and read. We have much to cover, and we, we, we want to talk about the subject that we find uh, with the fifth parable and what it's about. So we'll start with verse 34. All these things, summarizing the things of the first four parables, all these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spoke he not unto them. So you see the first four parables delivered to the multitude and spoken only by parable. Verse 35, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. So we have now, um, and I'm tempted to talk about the foundation of the world because um, it's, such a, it's such a wonderful statement, but, uh, but we'll take that up some other time and what that means. 
But uh, the, the Lord spoke in parables, uh, fulfilling the Scripture, that hearing they would not hear, and seeing they would not see. And um, he, he spoke those to the multitudes, and then he sent the multitude away, and we have dramatic action. He went into the house. And so that may, gives us a nice division between four and three of these parables. Of course, four is the number of the world, so it's appropriate that four parables are are given to the multitudes out uh, outside the house. Uh, now he comes into the house, three, the number of uh, a number of divine completeness. And uh, his disciples, verse 36, his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto, the, unto us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answers about the tares of the field. Now, we took that up and uh, a couple of days ago. I think we took that one up Tuesday. So I'm not going to go through this section of Scripture other than to say that the interpretation of the tares and the interpretation of the sower and the, and the seed, the interpretation of those two parables were enough for the apostles to understand the next two because they had no questions of the Lord about explain to us the parable of the mustard tree or explain to us the parable of the leaven. And that's because they could understand that that, that it was the action of the enemy of our Lord Jesus Christ that brought about the wrong conditions of the mustard tree and that brought about the leaven until the whole lump was leavened. They understood these things. Remember that most remarkable verse is verse 51 of Matthew 13. Jesus said unto them, Have you understood all these things? They say unto him, Yea, Lord. So we have that marvelous uh, truth there that we have enough here for us to understand it just as uh, the disciples had. Now we're going to look only at verse 44 out of Matthew 13. Only out of verse 44. Again, and um, because we've had the action, because we've had the Lord go into the house, because he's given the interpretation of the parable of the tares, uh, because he sent the multitude away, we might, we might not realize that this is part of the same teaching without this word again. It's a connective word. So again, he says, the kingdom of the heavens is like unto treasure hid in a field. The which, when a man has found, he hides, and for the and for joy thereof, goes and sells all that he has, and buys that field. Now, this parable, uh, we'll try to uh, ex- ex- give good exposition to it. We'll try to just highlight how it fits in with the rest of the scriptures. But before I do that, I I think, uh, and I don't always do this, uh, but I think I'll just talk a little bit about some of the wild or some of the most common but wrong interpretations of this parable that are given. Typically, the interpretation that's given to this parable is that uh, this is the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant man, and the merchant man is a sinner. The merchant man is looking around for something. Let me, let me come back here. A man is looking around for something, and he finds a treasure, not a merchant man, but a man, and he finds something that's hidden, and that's the gospel. And he finally finds the gospel, and he's so excited about finding the gospel, what he's been looking for all of his life, that he gives everything he has to God in order to have the gospel. Now, there are those people who teach that that's the gospel. There are people today, as a matter of fact, it's very common uh, to hear in place of the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
in place of the fact that Christ died for your sins in your place, and in fact of the in in place of the fact that you're saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Uh, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. In place of that, we have today common phraseologies that I gave my life to Jesus, or I asked Jesus into my life, or I accepted God in my life, or I gave my life to God, or I accepted Jesus into my heart. These kind of things are taught in place of the gospel. Now, I don't want to be picky uni about words and pick fights over words, but words have their meanings, and uh, all of those little phrases are not really the gospel. You don't have to invite Jesus into your heart. I don't even know what that means, invite Jesus into your heart. I don't know what it means to invite God into my life. I don't know what it means to give my life to God. I don't know what it means to give my heart to Jesus. I don't understand really any of those when I think about them. They are none of what I did, and I was saved by the grace of God through faith. What I've discovered in my life is that Christ found me, and I found him finding me, uh, that he's the one who sought and saved the lost. He's the good shepherd. He leaves the 99, goes after that lost sheep. Uh, he came to seek and to save uh, that which was lost. He's the one pictured in the, in the, in the gospel uh, account uh, that uh, w where uh, the, the coin is lost and the woman searches until the coin is found. He's the one seeking. I'm the one running. I'm the one. I'm the one like Adam. I'm, I'm made in the similitude of Adam after he sinned. And what did Adam do after he sinned? He hid. He ran away from God. He had open fellowship with God, but his sin gave him a guilty conscience. Who told him he was naked? And and he hid. And he, and and that's me. And that's you. And that's I'm not some man. That. When it was looking for treasure and found the gospel after so many years of looking for it. That's not me. I was I was lost. I was an enemy in my mind by wicked works. I was uh, in the world, uh, loving the things of the world, and uh, hoping for the things which the world offered. Finally came to a, uh, an understanding by the grace of God that I needed a Savior, not that I found a treasure, and I never sold everything. I didn't have to pay anything for eternal life. I, I was saved by grace through faith, and the fact is I paid nothing for my salvation. It was the gift of God, and I have it as a gift, and it won't be taken from me. He paid everything for it. So now we begin to see uh, a little bit more of what might be the principle behind uh, this parable, and it's close relative, by the way, that the, the next parable, very close relative of it, all these parables quite quite uh, uh, closely related to each other, but they're distinguished because of the subject matter at hand. So again, the kingdom of the heavens is like unto a treasure hid in the field. So we have to identify, well, what's the treasure? Well, let's start out with some of the things we know. We know what the kingdom of the heavens is. Talked about that. Kingdom of the heavens, the rulership of the heavens over the earth. And, and it says, it is like unto a treasure hid in the field. Well, let's skip the treasure for a minute and remember what the field has been. The word again connects it to the other parables. So what, what was that field? The field's the world. The field is the world. And so we have a treasure. We have something 
hid in the world, the which when a man finds. Now here's somebody looking for this treasure. So, so who came looking for anything? Well, our Lord Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which is lost. That's what he said. And he also said, I am not come except to the house of Israel. So we're, we're now able to conclude, and we'll find it in the Scripture elsewhere, that, that and I'll propose to you that the man that's looking for a treasure is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's looking in the world when he comes. Uh, the treasure is hid in the world when he comes. And I'll suggest to you that that treasure is Israel. And and why do I suggest that? Well, because of the Bible. I suggest it because it's in the Bible. So we'll look at Exodus uh, chapter 19, where we find introduction to the purpose of Israel and to the promises of God to Israel. Remember that uh, God brought Israel out of Egypt, telling Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn. If you don't let my firstborn go, I am going to destroy your firstborn. And uh, he, he proved his power, finally, uh, with the final judgment on Egypt, as, it, as God judged the gods of Egypt, uh, uh, the false gods of Egypt. The tenth judgment, finally, was the judgment on the firstborn. And finally, Pharaoh was made by the high hand of God, powerful hand of God, to let the children of Israel go. And at the time of the Passover, just prior to the time the death angel visited, the firstborn nation of God was formed in the womb of Egypt. Now, here is what, uh, what Exodus 19 teaches. In verse 3, Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me, above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And so God promised Israel that if they keep his covenant, which they didn't, but God promised Israel if they kept his covenant, then he, they would be for him a peculiar treasure. Uh, this uh, identifying Israel, and only Israel spoken of, uh, in the Old Testament, of course, as a peculiar treasure. You may say unto me, but in the New Testament there are others spoken of as a peculiar treasure. That's right, and we'll get to that, and they are others. They are others. But there is this false uh, notion about today, and it's a very bad one, that the equivalent of Israel uh, is the church, and that is just not true. The, the Lord gives us a fundamental distinction between Israel and the church, and that division is one of the major divisions by which we must cut the Word of God straight. I refer you to 1 Corinthians 10. I can even, as I'm learning to speed turn due to radio, due to live radio, when we look at 1 Corinthians 10, we can see the Apostle Paul giving uh, advice uh, to the Corinthians and saying in verse 31 and 32, where whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Excellent advice. Give none offense 
neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. And so there are these three groups. There are the Jews, there are the Gentiles, there is the church of God. Those three groups remained distinct during the time of early Christianity. The church of God was formed separately from the nation of Israel. In fact, the church of God has been elected at a different time than either the Jews or the Gentiles. The Jews will form the nation of Israel, the Israel of God in a yet future time. The, the Gentiles are, of course, distinct from the Jews. Everybody knows that. Every Gentile knows that. Every Jew knows that. That, that covers everybody except for us who are the Church of God, who ought to have everything straight, realizing that we're neither Jew nor Gentile, but an enemy isn't, is confounding us. You see, tares are sown amongst the wheat. Uh, false doctrine is spread through the woman and the leaven. Uh, birds of the air have made their perch. Uh, in, in, a, in a tree that ought to have been a bush. And so we have the great challenge of understanding the times that we're in and conducting ourselves accordingly to it, and to see that God has three different elect groups from different time periods. I'm chosen in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. So is everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ during this day. Everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ during this particular age, when the church, which is his body, is being formed, discover through reading the Scripture that they were chosen in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. We have Psalm 135. I want to read it. The Lord, verse 4, The Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself, and Israel for his particular or excuse me, his peculiar treasure. So uh, there are many scriptures that we could look at and uh, and t to develop these things. But uh, I wanna I wanna point out to you that there is this treasure hid in the field, and that's another thing: is Israel was hidden at the time of our Lord Jesus Christ, and is hidden now again. Or maybe we could even say in a different way. Well, how you might say, how was Israel hidden during the time of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the diaspora was in place at that time. This is something that because we read the New Testament, uh, we may not notice right away because uh, Israel does have, uh, I might even call it a pseudo-nation. They don't really have a nation. They don't have any independence. They're not one nation under God. In fact, they're a nation in unbelief at the time of the writing of the New Testament. They're not only in unbelief, but they have a false king. That's because the first coming of the Lord is a, a bit of a picture of his second coming. And when the Lord comes a second time, Israel will still be trodden down by the Gentiles. And they'll still have a phony baloney king, only he'll be even worse than Herod. Now, in Psalm 135, we saw that God called Israel his peculiar treasure. I want to look at a scripture that's just an amazing scripture, uh, I like to point it out because it was when it was pointed out to me, uh, I found it just to be so much like God to write His book this way. Uh, but if you if you look at Genesis forty nine, uh, you 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 can find an interesting little uh, tidbit. Uh, this is uh, this is now instructions. We'll just read about it. It's about the cave where Abraham was buried. And it says, in the cave that is in the, verse 30, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, 
which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abram, Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite for possession of a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Lee. This is what, this is what Jacob says. Uh, the, the purchase of the field and the cave that is therein from the children of Heth. So here Jacob is speaking and, and saying that he buried Lee in this cave where is, wherein is Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Rebekah. And this cave is hidden in the field that was purchased from uh, the children of Heth. And if you put together the names of those buried in that, in that cave, if you put those names together, Isaac, Sarah, Rebekah, Abraham, and Lee, and take the first letters from each of those names as an acrostic, and the Hebrew Bible does have acrostics in it for us, you'll find the word Israel, hidden in the field, in the cave Machpelah. So I submit to you that, that the kingdom of the heavens is like a, of, of Matthew thirteen forty four. the kingdom of the heavens is like unto a treasure hid in a field. First of all, Israel was hidden in, among the Gentiles in the diaspora, spread out among the Gentiles, in the field, which is the world, Israel was hidden at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they that didn't, those who did not understand that the Messiah must come um, and he must die, first he must die before he could collect together all of Israel and establish one nation under God, as, as they one day will be, thought that the Lord Jesus Christ would do that in his first coming. Yet he had a greater purpose in his first coming than they thought, than they thought. And so what we see now is that the Lord Jesus Christ came and he found, what did he find when he came? He found Israel hidden in the world. Now I want to talk about hidden. You see, the nation of Israel that, 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 the, that the people could see around them, we'll call it the pseudo-nation, the pseudo-nation of Israel, that, uh, for example, the apostles could see, the pseudo-nation of Israel that was in Jerusalem and those precincts during the time of the Lord's first coming, that could be seen. That wasn't hid. Well, what was hid? What was hidden? What was hidden were those, were those Jews who were real Jews, Romans chapter 3, whose circumcision was of the heart and not of the flesh, inwardly Jews. That is to say, those who had faith, in the Word of God, who received the Lord Jesus Christ, just like Abraham did when he came to them. And so uh, they, were, they were hidden. They were hidden in the field. Israel was hidden in the field when the Lord came. Now look what the parable says, which when a man finds, he hides. So now here's a hidden treasure. The man finds it hidden, but, he, but of course in order to find it hidden, he had to seek it out. He had to seek it out and specifically find it, which the Lord Jesus Christ did. He said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. And he sought out those who believed. And he still does that. And he, he found them, and he hid the treasure again. So here we find uh, two, uh, two actions by the man in the field, indicative of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the finding uh, of those hidden, and then the hiding of those found, or the hiding 
Uh, So he finds them, and he hides them again. And in fact, this is exactly what happened. The Lord Jesus Christ came to Israel. He died for their sins. Now, here it says, Who for the joy thereof goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, that doesn't pertain to you. You never had to sell one thing to be saved. You do not have to sell anything. Uh, to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. there's not, If God needed something, if God had a need, if God needed money, do you know what God says if he needed money or he needed some kind of goods or whatever? He says he wouldn't ask you for it, and he doesn't. He's not asking you for anything, my friend. The, the, God, God doesn't want anything that you have. He doesn't need you. God doesn't need you. You need him, and uh, that's a fact. And Here's another thing, my friend. Your love for God, let's not even talk about it. It's not worth talking about. Your love for God, which people love to talk about, their love for God. I'm not going to talk to you about my love for God. I have no idea what it is except weenie. But his love for me, that's a whole other thing. And his love for you, that's a whole other thing. Now, we can go on and talk about that quite a bit. But here is a picture of of a man, and this is a wonderful story of redemption, who found, he didn't find the field, he found the treasure hid in the field, but, and here's the grace of God, he didn't buy the treasure, he bought the whole field. Now, a friend of mine, this is how it is with God. Christ died for the sins of the whole world. I realize that there are uh, even some of you, my friends, uh, my brothers in Christ, who have subscribed to a doctrine that Christ did not die for the sins of the whole world. But here you see the man bought the whole field. He he bought the field to he bought the field to save the treasure. Now, you may say, well, I mean, I I'm not part of the treasure. I'm not part of Israel. I'm I'm a saved Gentile. Well, you see, that will keep you from becoming arrogant like the Jews were about being Israel. See, one of the things we're cautioned about as Gentiles is being arrogant about our salvation because God didn't spare the natural branches, and he'll also not spare the Gentiles. When Israel continued in unbelief, God set Israel aside and took up the Gentiles. When the Gentiles continue in unbelief, God will set the Gentiles aside, and he'll take up the Jews. And the Jews, and God will then reach the, the Gentiles through the Jews. That's yet to happen, but I get ahead of myself. My point here is that he sold all that he had, and thank God he didn't buy just the treasure, but he bought the whole field. Even this language, and for the joy thereof, goes and sells all that he has, appeals to us because of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, where we find that. Uh, we see the, the Lord Jesus Christ in his motivation and in his work, where it says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. So, the Lord Jesus Christ is one who, how did he go? Who for the joy that was set before him? Well, what was the joy that was set before him? The joy that was set before him, in part, was the saving of the nation Israel. 
This is the great love which made him go. He loved his enemies. He's the one who said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That has very specific application to Israel. Some say, well, that also applies to the Romans. Well, it applies to Israel first and foremost. Uh, we look also at Isaiah chapter 53. This is a passage of Scripture which young, uh, which young Jew, uh, Jewish uh, men uh, that I know of are not even allowed to, to read. Uh, um, but here, here we find this wonderful passage about our Lord Jesus Christ, beginning with verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. In fact, they were surprised at how he wouldn't answer his, his charges. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who will declare his generation? And he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. Now that's God saying that for the transgression of his people Israel was he stricken. You say, well, Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Yes, and specifically Christ died for Israel also. You see, he was able to die specifically for Israel and to die specifically for the sins of the whole world at the same time. And while we're talking about the death of Christ, and let me tell you, it's a, it's a, it's a subject we, we should talk about more often and we should talk about for endlessly, really. We will talk about it endlessly, and we'll think about it endlessly. But do you know that Jesus Christ passed through two deaths? So we read this. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his deaths, literally plural deaths. And what were those deaths? Well, it was the second death that he passed through and the first death that he passed through. And he passed through the second death first and then passed through the first death. And the reason he did that is so that we knew that he did pass through the second death. I remember when an old preacher told me this, I was so excited about it because first the Lord said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What, a, what an amazing thought. God, who has never forsaken any of us, forsook the Son of God. Why? I mean, it's a rhetorical question. You can read the psalm. But he was forsaken of God the Father because of the great love that God so loved us. He so loved the world. He loved the whole world. And he loved Israel. So first he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that forsaking that God that God did of the of the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is the second death. That really is what it is. You're for, when you're finally forsaken of God, and my friend, you have not been forsaken by God. Christ was forsaken in your place. But if you insist and you refuse the work of the Son of God, finally, ultimately, God will forsake you, and you will be in the second death, which is the lake of fire. But our Lord Jesus Christ passed through that second death, and then he said, after he said, Why hast thou forsaken me? Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And then he expired. And now he passed through the death that we each understand about when our loved ones die and the, the one that we will each experience, save we've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he comes before that time. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his deaths. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. 
That's the joy that was set before him. He saw his seed. He saw the progeny. He shall prolong days. He gives unto us eternal life. He'll prolong days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul. He will see of the travail of his own life. The Lord Jesus Christ, who for the joy that was set before him, saw of the travail of his life, saw the purchase that he was making. That's why we're called the redeemed. That are the ones, those are the ones who are bought. He bought you with a price. You're not your own. That's what the Bible says. So he also bought Israel. And here it says, he'll see of the travail of his soul, and he'll be satisfied. Satisfied that his work would be efficacious, that his work would be sufficient. And so with that set before him, with that joy, for the joy thereof, bought the field and endured the cross, and he really earned it. He bought the field. This wonderful parable now lays out for us the, the, the place of Israel in the redemption of Christ, that the treasure hid in the field. Now, what happened after the Lord Jesus Christ uh, died on the cross for sins? is he rose again from the dead and was declared to be the Son of God with power. And then he went out to the nation of Israel. In fact, he, he, he extensively went out to the nation of Israel. At the, at the time of Pentecost, the Holy Ghost coming, coming down, visiting Jews only, and, and the Word of God now going out only in Jerusalem at that time. And when the Word of God went out beyond Jerusalem, it went to Jews. It went to uh, the Jews in the, in, the, in the diaspora. And so even the Ethiopian eunuch, a eunuch of Ethiopia, a Jew in Ethiopia, I was uh, interested to learn, uh, I think it was about 15 years ago, when uh, so many Ethiopian Jews were found in Ethiopia, and uh, to learn and understand about the airlift of about 30,000 Ethiopian Jews as they came into Israel. But, but let me say this. God didn't establish a nation of Israel. The Lord Jesus Christ did not see to it that a nation of Israel was established. He came out to the nation of Israel in the person of the Holy Spirit through the use and ministry of the apostles. And finally, 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 in Acts 28, we read that Israel was so stubborn and so stiff-necked that the apostle Paul told them, this word now will go to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And God set Israel aside. Indeed, God hid the true Israel in the world. And this is one of the mistakes that very many, even dispensational friends of mine, make when they look at the nation of Israel today, and they see it somehow as God's nation under God. That nation that we see today is not the Israel of God. It is a nation in unbelief, just like the Gentile nations are in unbelief. And that nation is numbered with the Gentile nations, and so it can't be the Israel of God, which will never be numbered with the Gentile nations. That When the Israel of God comes, it will be one nation under God, and every other nation will be under that nation. And that is not happening today, and it's not going to happen today. The nation that you see is not the nation of Israel that is called the Israel of God in the Scriptures. 
The form today is a mystery form. So you say, well, where's the Israel of God today? Well, there remains a remnant according to the election of grace. God isn't establishing uh, his nation today. What God is doing today is he's establishing his church, which is his body. We're going to come back and talk about the great plan of God in just another minute. back. We're coming back here to Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, and we're talking about the parable of the treasure hidden in the field, and we're finding out that the treasure hidden in the field is Israel. And it's the Israel, it's God's Israel. It's the Israel of God, which is talked about as being in mystery form uh, in the book of Romans. And let me tell you that the, the, the nation of Israel, getting Israel right and wrong in the Bible, is every, a lot of things turn on that. I've been among many Christians in different environments, and it is very rare to find Christians that get Israel right. In fact, everybody wants to be Israel. Uh, the British Israelite, Israel people, they all want to be Israel. They want to say the British are Israel the Americans are Israel. Uh, everybody but the Jews are Israel. The uh, Mormons, they want to be Israel. They got, they got their promised land deal going. The Catholics, they want to be Israel. The Protestants, they want to be Israel. Everybody wants to be Israel because they want the blessings of Israel. None of them want the curses of Israel. They say, well, no, that's for the Jew. Those curses are for the Jew. Let me tell you something. There is nobody on earth that is a better friend of of Israel than Christians. And that's always been the case. The best friend Israel ever had is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, though despised and hated by the nation of Israel, loved them, said, I wished that I could be cursed, accursed, for my brethren, the children of Israel, if it would do them any good. The, the, the Apostle Paul put it this way, if, if I could if I could go straight to the lake of fire and save Israel thereby, I'd do it. But, of course, he couldn't. So the question arises, well, what about Israel? What about Israel? What, what advantage does Israel have? What, what, uh, what position do these people have? Well, that is what Romans 9, 10, and 11 is written about. And... Uh, Here's what the Apostle Paul wrote about, about Israel. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertains the adoption. That's the national adoption. God is not going to adopt anybody else. I, I'm so tired of hearing that verse plucked out of context in, in, in First Chronicles, if my people who are called by my name and etc. Israel, named after God, a prince of God, is named after God. Americans are named after an Italian map maker named Amerigo Vespucci. Now, we are not named after God. God does not have another nation there are many Christians in America, that's a wonderful thing, it has to do with liberty, it has to do with the preaching of the gospel, it has to do with the effective preaching of the gospel. That's over. The gospel is not given currency in America like it once was, and we're becoming less and less 
Christianized as a people. And uh, I don't believe that will change. Oh, I'd love it to change. I'd like revival to break out. I would love the whole city to rush and receive Jesus Christ. I just can't believe it'll happen. I'd like to believe that it would happen, but I don't decide what I believe. I believe the Scriptures, and I can't be persuaded, and I don't see anywhere in the Scriptures that that kind of a thing will happen. But certainly, God is not going to let some other nation take the place of Israel. He's just not going to do it. And who wants it anyway? I have something better than the earthly promises that Israel had. But to Israel obtains or pertains the adoption, and that's the national adoption, and they're going to get it, and the glory, that's the Shekinah glory. Israel had the actual bright cloud presence of God in the tabernacle in the wilderness and in the temple, and that was a real presence of God, a visible presence of God. Don't expect that Shekinah glory to show up in your house or in your church gathering place or in the White House or anywhere else, that's not going to happen. That belongs to Israel. And the covenants, the covenants belong to Israel. Somebody says, well, aren't you saved? Aren't you, aren't you under the new covenant? No, I'm under the blood of the new covenant, but the new covenant yet remains for future Israel. And it, God didn't write his laws on my heart. He didn't, he didn't do that. Uh, His laws aren't written on my heart. I don't know God's laws by heart. I don't even obey them. I'm not even under them. I uh, have the scriptures, and I've never been under. I've never been under that old covenant, and I'm not now under a new covenant. That new covenant. I may minute. I may be a minister out of that, but I am not under that covenant. That covenant remains, and all you have to do is read the book of Hebrews casually, and you will see that that is a future time. The covenants belong to Israel, and the giving of the law, that belongs to Israel. They're at Sinai, and the service of God, that is to say, what the, any liturgy that God ever created belonged to Israel. There is no such thing as a Christian liturgy or Christian service. I am so tired of people talking about worship services. I have no idea what that means. Okay, I know it's a meeting, but what is a worship service? The the service of God is to do whatsoever He commands you. The service of God is to walk in the works that He's created for you to walk in. The worship of God is to bow the head and submit your will to His. Whether you sing a hymn, whether you pray, whatever it is, that is not a worship service. Worship is to bow the head, and and you can worship any time you want, just like Jacob who leaned on his staff and worshipped. And the promises. The promises of God, these are the earthly promises of God, they are for Israel, and he's not going to repent, and he's not, and and not only that, but Israel isn't going to steal those promises and get them done by themselves either. So what do we have? We have Israel in unbelief. We have the nations in unbelief. We have Israel hid in the world. I have a great love for Israel, the Israel of God. That nation over there, I'm sorry to see it happen. I'm sorry to see these Jews in unbelief like they are because I know what a whipping that they're going to take because of it. I'm sorry to see our nation turn uh, against Israel, which it will do. I'm sorry to see the nations of the world turn against Israel, which it will do. That doesn't mean there's anything that we can do about it. We can follow the Scripture. We can have a love for the kinsmen of our Lord Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is no Christian. He is a Jew. He is a Jew. 
not he was a Jew, he is still a Jew. And that's why I have affection for Israel. I don't want their promises. I have a better deal because I'm in the church of God. And let me tell you this, my Jewish friend, you have no hope today of a, of a nation. That is not what God offers you today. You have a better hope today. You can become part of the church of God, which is his body, by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's a better thing. And then you can regain that which will be lost to the nation. Because the thing that Israel lost, they lost what they could lose. They lost the heavenly sphere of the kingdom of the heavens. And they, they retained the earthly promise, but they lost the heavenly sphere. Now, does this mean that God has cast off his people because he set them aside? This is what Romans 9, 10, 11 is about. In, in Romans 10, the apostle said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. I bear them record they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. They're ignorant of God's righteousness. That's right. I would like to see uh, Israel saved. I would like to see uh, God's, God's earthly people saved, that they would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a Christian sympathy. That's what makes Christians the Jew's best friend. Unhappily, that which goes as by the name of Christian has been historically some of the Jews' greatest enemies. Well, that's the confusion. An enemy has done this. An, an enemy has done that thing. Uh, that is not what the Bible teaches. An enemy has created that confusion. So, now, here's what the Apostle concludes on that. He says, Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. How will they believe except somebody be sent? How can they, how can they believe without a preacher? They can't. What do Jews need today? What do Gentiles need today? Well, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God. It's the power of salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. The, 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 word, the gospel of Jesus Christ is still the power of God, and it's to the Jew first. It's still to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. It has the same impact to both Jew and Gentile. But how are they going to hear it? Well, there has to be a preacher. So what do we do? We preach. Now, finally, here's, what, here's the apostles' statements in, in Romans chapter 11. Has God cast away his people? God forbid. For I'm also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. Well, why did he say that there? Because if God cast away his people, then Paul wouldn't have been saved, would he? Because he is an Israelite. So God hasn't cast away his people. He set aside the people nationally. That doesn't mean Jews are cast away. If you're a Jew today, you aren't going to get a nation under God except after that bloody mess that is in an age to come and a time to come, which is uh, the, the time of Jacob's troubles. But you don't have to wait for that. You could believe in the Lord Jesus Christ just like the Apostle Paul. He's proof that God did not cast away his people. He is of an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people which he foreknew. What you not, what the Scripture saith of Elias, how he makes intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, or I only am left, and they seek my life. But what was the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee 
to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Isn't that wonderful? Friends, that's what we have today. We have an election. God is seeking you. God, the Lord Jesus Christ, my Jewish friend, the Lord Jesus Christ died specially, specifically for Israel. When they rejected him, he set them aside, but he has not rejected you. You may yet find the grace of God, and how will you find it? The grace of God comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. 